Hey everyone, Rick Cole here, and it is a gray, gloomy, blustery November Sunday here in the Niagara region of Ontario as we bring you the 56th episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. This week, we are looking at November 15 to 21, 1970. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive. Their support has been absolutely crucial to uh, all the research that we do. Uh, We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Colvern, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall produce outstanding craft beers, many of which are made from recipes from the original breweries in the city in the late 1800s. They also uh, craft some of the best pub food on the planet. And if things ever return to normal, and we wonder about that these days, uh, I'd love to meet any of our listeners and followers at the break wall for one of their amazing burgers or pizza and a beer. We also like to remind you about our new Patreon account. Uh, it, it's a place on the internet, uh, www.patreon.com slash hockey 50 years. And you can go there and, uh, support us by donating and in return for your donation about five bucks a month for a standard membership you will get early access to each week's show plus some very special content that we put out two or three times a month for our subscribers this is stuff you won't get in the regular uh, podcasts each week and a lot of the information you just can't find anywhere these days we thank everybody who subscribed so far. It's really helping us keep the lights on here. And once again, patreon.com slash hockey 50 years. The 1970-71 hockey season is proving to be quite an interesting campaign in the National Hockey League. Uh, we had a few good stories last week. Uh, we had all the details about a um, huge brawl between the Bruins and Canadian and Boston Garden. It was really an ugly scene. Uh, we learned that the Maple Leafs lost 41-year-old goalie Jacques Plante with a knee injury. They hoped it wouldn't be long, but with the knees of a 41-year-old, you really just never knew. And we found out that the Leafs were going to bring up an untested rookie out of uh, American college hockey named Murray McLaughlin to back up regular Bruce Campbell. And of course, last week, once again, we talked about the uh, Detroit Red Wings, who were at that time going to great pains to deny reports of revolt within the team. Of course, that was a big clue that something was very wrong with the Detroit Red Wings. History would show exactly what the problems were. This week, another busy week in hockey. Uh, We have uh, the big stories, I think, are the results of some of the key games. We'll also talk a little more about the details of the departure of General Manager Frank Selke Jr. from the California Golden Seals. Uh, one of those big games we'll be uh, featuring will be the Buffalo Sabres at Toronto to play the Maple Leafs. And we have the details of Punch Imlac's return to Toronto. And we found this week, 50 years ago, there was a lot of talk about the possibilities of a National Hockey League franchise for, wait for it, Edmonton? 
will tell you that it wasn't just a pipe dream and people in the city were actively working towards the goal of bringing an NHL team to Edmonton. We'll tell you who they are and why they had such optimism. First up this week, we have some of the the, uh, league's more interesting game results. And the Buffalo Sabres actually make two of our uh, three featured games this week, and for good reason. It was the best week the Sabres experienced in their uh, very new, young National Hockey League existence. Uh, The first game was uh, Sunday evening, November 15th. Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo was packed with over 10,300 fans and the hometown expansion club did not disappoint them as they battled the Montreal Canadiens to a thrilling 2-2 draw. To put it more accurately, actually, the Sabres goalie Roger Crozier is the one who didn't disappoint the crowd. Roger was at his acrobatic best, stopping 29 Montreal shots compared to 15 for the Sabres and Phil Mir of the Canadians, and that could be considered one of Crozier's classic games in his entire career. Only a week earlier, the Canadians had literally buried the Sabres 11-2 in Montreal, but this night, uh, the, the uh, big crowd in Buffalo saw the Sabres come from behind twice to earn that 2-2 tie. More importantly, they moved into a tie for sixth place with the Toronto Maple Leafs in the NHL's Eastern Division, now with uh, an actual chance to get out of the, the league basement. Mickey Redmond scored both Montreal goals with Skip Craig and Jim Watson handling the Sabres' offense. Watson's goal in the 12th minute of the third period provided the Sabres with their first point in the three games they've had with Lake Canadien this season. Montreal forwards were generally on target with their shots this night, but as we mentioned, Crozier was the difference. The brilliant Buffalo netminder was at his best and had to be, as the Canadians, as we mentioned, outshot Buffalo 31-15, to and they had actually probably another 30 shots that narrowly missed the net, probably because Crozier played his angles so well during this game. The joy of the standoff, however was tempered for the Sabres when Randy Wyrosub, a 20-year-old center, fourth choice for the Sabres in the amateur draft last year, and a player Punch Imlac labels as the next Dave Keon, Randy suffered a fractured collarbone in the opening minutes of the first period. Defenseman Guy Lapointe of Montreal drew a boarding penalty on the play when Wyrosub was thrown heavily into the boards. Randy will be out for about six to eight weeks and what a tough break for a good young kid just starting out in the NHL. One of the key moments in the game was a couple of spectacular saves by Crozier. Uh, two actually on one shot on Peter Mahovlich when the score was tied 1-1 in the second period. Mahovlich unleashed uh, uh, an absolute howitzer from the blue line and Crozier fell as he as he made the save. The puck bounded in the air above him and Roger flat on his back banged it out of danger with a baseball-like swing of his stick connecting with the puck in midair. In the third period, the Buffalo crowd hooting, hollering, and uh, 
mainly delirious with joy, they were treated to perhaps the best 20 minutes of hockey played in Buffalo this year, or maybe actually anywhere else in the NHL this season. Both teams were racing end-to-end with a series of dart-like rushes, and Phil Mir, the Habs goalkeeper, had to make several sharp saves. Each club drew four penalties, but none of those figured in the scoring. Sabres coach Punch Imlach after the game said any time a first-year club ties with the Montreal Canadiens, it's doing pretty well. However, I must say, we got a gift and I recognize those when I see them. The Canadians missed so many chances, they all should uh, see optometrists. Crozier was great. What else can I say? That's Punch Imlach. Claude Ruel, the portly Montreal coach, wrapped the poor shooting exhibition of Canadiens. He said, we missed too many chances, and when we didn't miss, Crozier robbed us. And Claude was pretty true to form, pretty right on that assessment of the game. Both goalies were really uh, played well in the first period. Crozier beat John Beliveau, Guy Chiron, Pete Mahovlich, Mickey Redmond, and Guy Lapointe early in the game. And Mir got in front of a drive by Cliff Schmatz before Redmond finally scored for the Habs at 16:42. Uh, Redmond was decked at center ice by D- Buffalo defenseman Doug Berry and then uh, didn't quit, got up, and put away a screen 20-footer uh, just about a, a second later. Mir appeared to fan on Craig's drive from a, uh, just a step inside the blue line at 17.54 to tie things up. Crozier came through again early in the second period when he outguessed the great Jean Beliveau on a breakaway and Phil Mir made a great stop on Larry Keenan before Crozier's spectacular two-on-one stop we mentioned earlier on Mahavlich. The Sabres were uh, disorganized, momentarily running around in their own end when Redmond scored his second of the night when he banged in Terry Harper's rebound at 17.09. Buffalo fans were incensed when LaPointe cross-checked Larry Keenan to the ice second before the second period ended and referee Ron Wicks overlooked the play. The Sabres fans didn't. They littered the ice with debris as the period came to an end. Well, Roger Crozier's heroics continued in the third period when he beat Rajon Ull twice within seconds from just 10 feet in front of the goal and then got in front of short blasts by Bill Collins, Henri Richard, Beliveau, Tardif. Uh, LaPointe hit a post and J.C. Tremblay just missed the nut by inches from 10 feet. Now, Jim Watson, with his second shot of the night and his first on net, completed the scoring with a screen drive from the blue line at 11.49 of the third after Captain Floyd Smith provided a nifty pass out from the corner. Canadians weren't done. They stormed the Buffalo goal again as time was winding down with Richard and Bill Collins testing Roger. And again, he came up big and then... uh, Skip Crate got away and nearly won it for Buffalo with a late shot, but Phil Mir caught it on the drive from 15 feet, and the final score ended up Buffalo 2, Montreal 2, and a very happy 10,331 fans at Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo with the Sabres up to this point, very best game of this young NHL season. Our next featured game this week 
is another contest that has to be classed as just a huge upset. This one took place on the same evening as the Montreal-Buffalo game, and it was in Boston Garden. The lowly, basically awful California Golden Seals came into the garden and skated off with a shocking 2-1 win over for what was most, uh, for the most part a listless Boston Bruins hockey club. There was a bitter controversy at the end of the game over an adverse goal scoring decision provided the final item in a practically disastrous weekend for the Bruins. Uh, following up their loss Saturday night in Toronto, can you believe that? We talked about that last week. Uh, this was a, a humiliation in depth uh, because the Seals are basically the second worst team in the NHL, at least up to this point, behind Buffalo, well down in last place in the Western Division. In fact, the only time that this awful Seals club, then known as a team from Oakland, had ever won in Boston was Christmas night of 1968. The Bruins, simply put, were just an extremely flat team in this one. And the 14,994 Bruins fans at the Garden let them know it. Despite all that, though, uh, the Bruins boys did have a legitimate beef in a debate that's probably going to carry on for a few days. And as we saw in the Boston papers, they talked about this uh, bad goal call, at least that's what they're calling it, near the end of the game that gave the Seals the win. The, the source of all the controversy happened actually at 619 of the third period when Boston defenseman Dallas Smith took a high-rising shot which appeared to go into the net behind Seals goalie Gary Smith. Smith, of course, is a six-foot-four netminder who's actually the son of an old Boston defenseman by the name of Desi Smith. Now, this play was so important because the Bruins were already trailing after a strong scoring drive by Bobby Orr. In, in the first period, that was offset by uh, subsequent goals by the Seals, Carl Vadney and Dennis Hextall. The Bruins were showing some belated signs of life as Smith came down on the middle of a three-on-one rush with Johnny Busick and Johnny McKenzie. Uh, Dallas went right in, didn't pass, and made a shot that apparently uh, got up somewhere beyond the left shoulder of uh, a crouching going down Gary Smith. The crowd cheered, but referee Brian Lewis waved the play off. Now, Lewis is a relatively new NHL official working his first season in the big league. After a brief pause, a little longer than normal, Goal judge Tom Moon himself, a former goalie with the Boston Olympics of years gone by, uh, he flashed the red light, but Lewis remained firm in his decision as Brian Lewis later on in life would be known to be very firm once he makes up his mind and he continued to wave the goal off. This led to some understandably varying versions of the episode after the game. Dallas Smith said, there's no question about it. I was moving up when I got the puck up over his left shoulder. It hit that curved pipe behind him in the net, and it came right out. Seals goalie Gary Smith, no relation to Dallas, by the way, was very candid uh, when he talked about the play. He said, I was hardly in a position to tell what happened behind me, was I? Seals coach Freddie Glover uh, had this comment. He said, there's no way it went in. 
I had a perfect view and it hit the pipe outside on the angle between the crossbar and the upright to the left of Smitty. Shucks, I wouldn't kid you. I'd admit it went in if it did because we'd have won it now anyway. Tom Moon, the goal judge, has had his share of celebrated incidents at Boston Garden in the past, including the one last year when he insisted that a shot by Chicago's Jerry Pinder did not get by Bruins goalie Eddie Johnson. At that time, Tom was overturned by the referee that night. The goal held up, and the Blackhawks won that game one nothing. Moon said, I don't want to make any real statement. I put on the light because I saw the puck go up and move the strings at the top of the net. Bruins coach Tom Johnson was asked to comment and he said, uh, I don't really want to say too much about it other than our guys swear that it went in. Well, Tom actually had a few other comments, but this is a family show, just like the newspapers were the family uh, newspapers and they did not print Tom's other words that he said to reporters that night. This game never was a a real thriller. It was a a bit of a dud, if the truth be told. But the fans, they didn't mind it so much when Orr whistled home his fifth goal of the season at 10-22, the first, after a slick pass back from uh, Derek Sanderson. But the mood grew worse all night, and the crowd was openly critical of the Bruins when Vadney scored at 15-39 to tie it up. That came out of a scramble in front of the net. It was all downhill for the for the Bruins the rest of the evening. The Boston fans grew increasingly frustrated, and when the goal was called back, or shall we say disallowed, by Brian Lewis, things were pretty ugly, but at this time, at least not like a week ago when they had the brawl against Canadians, the Seals didn't provide much of the uh, fisticuff opposition, and the game ended peacefully, the Seals going home, with a very unexpected 2-1 upset over the mighty Boston Bruins. Our third game this week had the Buffalo Sabres and coach general manager Punch Imlach facing the Toronto Maple Leafs at Maple Leaf Gardens for the first time this season and the first time ever in the Sabres history. Now the build-up for this game Uh, was enormous both in Buffalo and in Toronto given the considerable acrimony that still existed between Imlac and Toronto Maple Leafs President Stafford Smythe. Imlac, you know, had been the Leafs general manager coach for 11 seasons, leading them to four Stanley Cups before being unceremoniously dumped by Smythe right after a playoff loss to Boston in 1969. Both of Imlac and Smythe uh, had exchanged words via the media early in this season and everyone who follows the NHL knows that this game was the one contest that Imlac wanted to win in this fledgling NHL season for the Sabres. So to say it was a big game was actually a bit of an understatement if you were a Sabres fan. And for Buffalo at least, it turned out to be one of the highlights of their inaugural season. At the beginning of the game, when Imlac emerged behind the Buffalo bench, the Toronto crowd was uh, uh, very happy to see him, and they gave him a well-deserved standing ovation in recognition of all the fine work Punch did do with the Maple Leafs. After all, as we mentioned, he did deliver four Stanley Cups. At the end of the night, they were chanting, We want Punch! We want punch. It was a wonderful triumph 
for IMLAC before 16,345 sellout crowd at Maple Leaf Gardens. And the Sabres thrashed the Maple Leafs by an unbelievable score of 7-2. The victory was the first on the road for the Sabres since they opened the season with a 2-1 decision over Pittsburgh back on October 10th. And uh, for Imlac, the game was letter perfect. He'd been pointing to this one since the day he signed his first Sabres contract and the, the team, they did not let him down this time. And in irony of ironies, it was two former Leafs, Jerry Meehan and Larry Keenan, who led the Buffalo attack, each scoring a pair of goals. The other Buffalo marksmen were Donnie Marshall, Steve Atkinson, and Paul Andrea. Uh, Gary Monahan and Mike Walton, by the way, had the uh, Toronto scores. Marshall and Walton scored off power play goals as the Sabres drew five of the seven minor penalties called in the game. It was 1-1 at the first intermission, and the Sabres locked up the decision with a three-goal burst in the second period to take a 4-2 lead. The Leafs, who were completely outplayed the last two periods, actually held a 46-32 shooting advantage, but they couldn't handle Roger Crozier, who for the second game in a row... Uh, put on an absolutely brilliant performance against one of the pre-expansion six teams. Crozier turned in probably a dozen spectacular saves, and at the other end, Maple Leaf goalie Bruce Gamble was lifted uh, after the Sabres had moved into a 6-2 lead in the third period, allowing young collegian Murray McLaughlin to make his NHL debut, and Murray gave up one more goal. Despite the lopsided score, Crozier actually was the difference, although he got a lot of help from his defense, who blocked a carload of shots. Punch Imlac at the end of the game when asked to comment on his goalkeeper. Uh, his only comment was, what can I say? This is great. Unbelievable. It's all been said for me by everybody else. Did I thank every man on the club? You bet I did. I'm just happy to come out of Maple Leaf Gardens as a winner. Toronto President Stafford Smythe wasn't around for comments at the end of the game. He disappeared from the gardens at the end of the second period with Buffalo leading 4-2. to two. Uh, He didn't want to stick around for any further embarrassment. Uh, Punch was asked if, if he would have done the same thing as Smythe did, and his quick comment was, no way. I've been behind before, and let me say this about Leaf coach Johnny McClellan. He's a hell of a guy and a hell of a coach. He worked for me for two years, and I feel sorry for him right now. If I'd stayed, he would have been the guy I would have recommended to take over for me as coach. Imlac was asked if the players... Uh, worked a little harder than usual, were a little more anxious to win this game. And uh, he said, well, the players, they knew how I felt about this game. Captain Floyd Smith used to play here, and you saw what Meehan and Keenan did. They knew that I wanted this one more than anything else. Want to know how much this game actually meant to Imlac? He said that he rated this game a thrill as big as any of my four Stanley Cup uh, triumphs for Toronto. It had something special. No one gave our team a chance, just like very few gave us a snowball's chance in this game. But I told you we would win the game before I started. I'm sorry I gave you the wrong score. Imlac predicted it would be 4-1. to one. I actually thought, Imlac said, that my players would save a few uh, goals for the next time out. 
Did we shove the needle in deep enough? You can bet we did. Leafs coach McClellan had this assessment, and his was probably the most assessment of the entire night. He said, They beat the hell out of us. What more is there to say? Our fellows were terrible defensively, and they forgot that part of their game. Final score again, Buffalo Sabres 7, Toronto Maple Leafs 2 in the first ever meeting in the NHL regular season before the Sabres and the Maple Leafs. There would be many more games to come over the years. Uh, It's a rivalry that's been well documented over the last 50 years. Uh, Now let's have a look at the rest of the considerable amount of hockey news we had this week. We have more on a story we reported in our last show involving the California Golden Seals and their now former general manager, Frank Selke Jr. Frank, you remember, uh, over the years was a host on Hockey Night in Canada for a long time, and his father, Frank Selke Sr., was probably the most successful general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. Well, Frank Jr. was hired in 1967 to run the Seals by Barry Van Gerbig, who at that time was the head of that confusing first Seals ownership group. Frank occupied the Seals general manager position until last week when new Seals owner Charles O. Finley announced that Frank had resigned from the team. Then he said, Frank had simply rejected a new contract that he, Finley, had offered him. Then he said that Selke had no contract other than the one he signed with the previous ownership. And then he uh, had said that he did not purchase the contracts of of uh, Selke, Vice President Bill Torrey, Coach Fred Glover, when he bought the team which is interesting because he purchased all the contracts of the players, but somehow management didn't count. So stories began to surface about what was going on with all this, and Toronto writer Paul Patton uh, had this report. uh, We'll give you the highlights of this report that he made, along with uh, some other stories from around the league that kind of gives you a summary of uh, where Frank says he is at this point in time. When asked what his status was at this uh, at this moment, Selkie just came out and said, I'm looking for a job. At least I will be pretty soon. Uh, Selkie made the comment in the face of the dispute with, with Finley. Finley says, as we mentioned above, that he quit. At stake in this thing, what's really going on, it's all about money. Isn't it always all about money? Now, now Finley had said that Selkie's lawyer had informed him of Frank's resignation and that Selkie had said he would stay with the team until a new man could be broken in. But but Frank Selkie had a different uh, story. He says that uh, Finley's statement concerning the status of my employment is not entirely correct. Selkie went on to say that the negotiations had been going on for some time to resolve uh, contract differences uh, Finley, according to Selkie, didn't recognize the liability under the four-year contract he'd signed when he joined the SEALs in 1967. So Frank said that uh, Finley tendered him a one-year contract at substantially fewer dollars than what his present contract called for. Frank went on to say, I have neither resigned nor quit. I am simply refusing to accept less than that to which I am entitled. 
Frank said that Finley has placed me in a position which makes it impossible for me to continue with the SEALs, so I'm going to take whatever legal action is necessary. I'd imagine that'll mean a lawsuit. Finley's reaction to all this was that he was making Vice President Bill Torrey the general manager to replace Selkie and that Coach Fred Glover had agreed to sign a two-year contract to remain with the team behind the bench. Since this involves a franchise that has been nothing but a thorn in the side to the NHL since its inception, uh, you wonder what NHL President Clarence Campbell has to say. Well, he issued this uh, legalese uh, statement. Campbell said he, meaning Finley, bought the assets. He didn't buy the liabilities. His bid was for the assets. He's in a very vulnerable position in that if he repudiates any contracts, he automatically forfeits the property involved. It's his choice with the players, same as with Selkie. If he chooses to refuse to honor a contract, the player becomes a free agent, but it's his choice. It was the same with Frank. Frank became a free agent and he can deal with whomever he wishes. This is the difference between buying assets as opposed to buying a corporation. Finley bought a partnership, not a corporation. Clear as mud, right? But then again, what would you expect? This is the California Golden Seals, and they've been a mess, but the NHL refuses to recognize that since 1967. Now they have a guy who seems to have a lot of money who's owning the team. You know who Clarence Campbell is going to side with in this one. This next story, we didn't hear a lot of it back east uh, in 1970, but as I look back now, this was really a pretty interesting thing. Stories uh, were circulating around Western Canada for actually for a few months now about the professional hockey returning to Alberta, specifically in Edmonton and Calgary in the form of franchises in the Western Hockey League. Uh, the Western League at this point seemed to be on its last legs with uh, NHL invading the West Coast and a re revival could take place with some teams in other cities, not right on the coast, like Calgary and Edmonton. Uh, the big hope in Edmonton uh, was the uh, Omniplex Sports and Entertainment Center that was being built in the downtown. It hadn't been approved yet, and everyone was hoping that if this was given approval by Edmonton Council, that an NHL team would not be far behind. In fact, there were a, a, a lot of people working behind the scenes in Edmonton who would settle for nothing less than an NHL franchise. But who were the people behind these these movements? Well, the guy who was holding everything up was a well-known Edmontonian by the name of Bill Hunter, often called Wild Bill Hunter. His uh, associates, however, hadn't been at this point publicly revealed but uh, according to Wayne Overlander of the Edmonton Journal, it really wasn't much of a secret. Overlander said that Hunter's major partner in the investment business is not only a major financial force in Edmonton, but reaches across Canada and into the United States. Hunter also had associates in other Western Canada cities with sizable financial resources. It's no wonder that knowledgeable businessmen are keenly interested in operating NHL hockey at the proposed Omniplex Arena, which is probably 
probably going to be the largest arena in the world if it actually comes to pass. The NHL in Edmonton wouldn't have to draw one single fan for 27 home games if it sold out the remaining 12 home games. You get that? Well, what Overland's really referring to is the fact that the arena is going to seat 19,600 fans for hockey and that the Edmonton fans would fill the place up every night for games against Boston, New York, Montreal, Chicago, and Detroit. Not to mention the Maple Leafs, who are awful right now. Still a lot of Maple Leaf fans in Western Canada. Now, he cites uh, as the Boston games in Vancouver so far this season, which have been sold out since last summer. But Hunter and his group aren't the only people who think the NHL can be a surefire success in the city of Edmonton. Roger Bourbonnet is one of these guys. He's a former Canadian national team player who became a lawyer in Edmonton and has been flying fans from Edmonton and Calgary to the games in Vancouver. Bourbonnet told the Edmonton Journal just this past week that the city will get an NHL team once the Omniplex is completed. Uh, Ray Kanasiewicz, who's the former general manager coach at Salt Lake City in the Western Hockey League, stated that NHL hockey is a logical venture in Edmonton with a suitable facility. And he said that he was aware that influential people in the NHL have been following these developments in Edmonton very closely. He indicated that those people were the Knox brothers in Buffalo, who, of course, just brought expansion hockey, NHL hockey, to that city. The Sabres general manager, Coach Punch Imlach, visited Edmonton last summer, and he got a good look at models and the the plans for the Omniplex project, and he said that if this project came to fruition, that it would definitely mean a National Hockey League franchise would be coming to Edmonton either by way of expansion or the move of a franchise that had some difficulty, and of course, the teams in Pittsburgh and California come to mind there. Imlac said the success of the Vancouver Canucks and the Montreal Expos at the box office is convincing Americans that Canadian cities can definitely support major sport. Wild Bill Hunter thinks they can't help but make money with an NHL team. Hunter says the Omniplex with 19,600 seats would be the largest and most modern arena available in the NHL. The success of the football Edmonton Eskimos at the box office was given as another reason for bringing the NHL to Edmonton. Hunter said that the Eskies only have eight home games and operate on a budget of $900,000. Hunter says the budget for an NHL team is only $300,000 and yet they have 39 home games. The Eskies draw 23,000 fans a game and an NHL team, if they all sold out, would have 19,000 fans a game for 39 dates. Do the math. Hunter went on to say that the NHL would be the major tenant of the Omniplex and it would generate about $750,000 annually in rents, concessions, and parking. Uh, The NHL bill says could easily make the Omniplex a paying proposition in its very first year. 
He projected that because of the size of the arena. The Edmonton NHL ticket prices, he says, would be among the lowest in the National Hockey League, ranging from a low of 350 to about 650 for the top seats. And that's about the same as the Edmonton Eskimo CFL prices. Bill Hunter is so convinced that there will be NHL hockey in Edmonton that he has said that there will be a contest held to de- to determine the name of the proposed new team. He's thinking that far ahead already. NHL hockey in Edmonton. Can you imagine that? Well, all this uh, stuff from Bill Hunter was followed up a couple days later from a source no less than the Canadian press who published a story saying that written application has been submitted to the National Hockey League from the city of Edmonton uh, requesting consideration for a National Hockey League franchise. And the head of the group was, as we mentioned, Bill Hunter. The application, according to the Canadian press uh, and made by Hunter, said that uh, his group of associates with financial resources and backgrounds, which I am positive will make them acceptable to the governors of the National Hockey League, is requesting an NHL franchise upon completion of a suitable arena. Now, all this, of course, is contingent on the arena actually being completed. Well, Edmonton taxpayers will soon vote on the 32.5 million covered center, which will include the football field, a hockey rink, and trade and convention centers. Now, Hunter is, of course, going public with his request for a franchise in order to convince the good citizens of Edmonton to vote for the center says it's large enough to house an NHL team and really isn't that what all sports fans in Edmonton would like there's a lot of controversy about the plan and it's not a slam dunk that this will be approved but if it does go through you have to think that the NHL will seriously look at Edmonton as a home for a new team have some other news and notes from this week. The Maple Leafs have officially received permission from the Detroit Red Wings to try and strike a deal with retired defenseman Carl Brewer. The Leafs uh, recently acquired Bobby Bond from uh, the Red Wings by way of Buffalo and St. Louis, and Bond and Brewer formed an impressive defensive tandem when the Maple Leafs were winning Stanley Cups in the early 1960s. Brewer retired from the Detroit club this fall, just before training camp, and recently told the Wings he wasn't going to return to Detroit under any circumstances. Brewer came to Toronto this week and did engage in talks with Toronto management, but no decisions were made. He was working out in the city with the University of Toronto Blues hockey team and told reporters that as of yet, he hadn't made up his mind to return to the NHL, but he hoped to do so very soon. Now, if the Leafs were able to convince Carl to come back, there would then uh, be a trade consummated between the Leafs and the Red Wings, but neither club has made any details public up to now. Still with the Maple Leafs, they lost defenseman Brad Selwood this week for an undetermined period of time when he fractured a small bone in his back during a Thursday night game against the Montreal Canadiens. Selwood collided with Montreal defenseman Serge Savard in the second period and he lay on the ice 
in what was certainly shown to be extreme pain uh, for several minutes before they finally removed him on a stretcher. He was taken to hospital and is going to remain there for about a week. And another Maple Leaf uh, uh, bit of news, George Armstrong has agreed once again to end his latest retirement and return to the team. George was talked into coming back by Leafs GM Jim Gregory and President Stafford Smythe. He's been working out. He's very close to game shape, so he should appear in the Toronto lineup very soon. John Ferguson returned to the Montreal Canadiens lineup on Wednesday evening against the Oakland Seals. Fergie had skated only four times since agreeing to end his brief retirement on the weekend, and he was clearly out of shape. In fact, he only played two minutes and 41 seconds in a game which he was barely needed anyway as the Habs thrashed the Seals 5-1. to one. Interesting bit of minor league news this week in the Eastern Hockey League, the Nashville Dixie Flyers, who, by the way, trained in uh, my hometown of Port Colborne, Ontario. Well, my second hometown of Port Colborne, Ontario. They went on strike this week after Coach Lloyd Hinchberger fined the entire team the uh, enormous sum of $70 each for what he termed a sleepy performance in a 3-1 loss to the Greensboro Generals. The players listed three main complaints. Number one, the fines, of course. Also, poor travel conditions and insufficient medical treatment for injured players. Strike didn't last very long, though. It only lasted actually one day, and that was the day the team uh, failed to show up for a game in Greensboro. The players, however, the next day voted in the walkout and returned to play for the Flyers, but it sounds like there's some irreparable damage done between the players and coach Lloyd Hinchberger. Now, if you know Lloyd Hinchberger, very interesting character. One of the roughest, toughest hombres to ever grace the minor leagues uh, in North America. He became a coach and he takes and gives no quarter with his players or the opposition. Oft-injured forward Lowell McDonald of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Another bad break. He had knee surgery this week, and he's going to be out of the Penguins lineup till at least January. He had missed the previous 11 games with a bad knee. It didn't respond to treatment, so a decision was made to go under the knife and try and fix it once and for all. Philadelphia Flyers goalie Doug Favell made headlines early this season with his shaggy long hair. Uh... Coach Vic Stasiak didn't like it, but didn't say anything. Well, this week, Doug got a haircut, and it wasn't because of any edict from the team or from Coach Stasiak. Seems Doug is slated to appear on a local TV show, and he just wanted to look his best. A little bit of sad news from this week, 50 years ago, as one of the all-time NHL greats passed away. New Zealand was 83, and he died in a Montreal hospital this week from complications which arose after he had hip surgery earlier this month. From 1905 to 1926, Lalonde blazed a fabulous big league hockey career uh, and also in lacrosse in cities such as Montreal, Toronto, Regina, Saskatoon, Vancouver, New York, New York, truly a coast-to-coast athlete in the early 20th century. Lalonde once scored nine goals in a game and he led the National Hockey League in scoring four times 
between 1910 and 1921. Of course, those years before 1917 were the National Hockey Association. New Zealand is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he was selected as Canada's outstanding lacrosse player in the last half century. So that's this week's show, everyone. And what did we learn this time around? Well, we learned that the Buffalo Sabres may may not be the Patsies that everyone has been saying they are. And a big win in Toronto not only convinced a lot of people of that, but it made the season for Punch Imlac. We learned of a very strong movement in Edmonton to bring NHL hockey to that Alberta city. And we wonder how long it'll be before more uh, big league hockey shows up in Western Canada. And we learned a little bit more about the departure of Frank Selke Jr. from the California Golden Seals as his position as general manager. Next week, a lot of news to be had again. Uh, Gordy Howe will have a big game for the Red Wings, but it's going to be a costly one as he gets hurt and he's gone for probably a couple weeks. Uh, we'll learn about Maple Leaf rookie Daryl Sittler, who at this point in the season still looking for his first NHL goal. He's been described around the league as the Leafs' Tom Sawyer. And we have another story about another city looking to bring an NHL team to their new rink. We'll tell you which community it is and who's angling for the club. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy's now in the business of producing podcasts professionally. And if you're thinking of starting up uh, something like this, get a hold of me and I will hook you up with one of the best in the business. Andy is a true media professional who had a great career in radio and now he's doing this again full time. The very popular Juno nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music and they are in the studio right now getting ready to present their sec or their uh, probably fifth or sixth album but the first one since the pandemic has started if you ever get a chance to see them live you got to take in the show they put on a great uh, high energy performance every time other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast are produced by andy cole as well our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at our sponsor, newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at AdHockey50Years and our Facebook page at 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We also have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. You can get the podcast anywhere where fine podcasts can be downloaded. Uh, thanks again to everyone who tunes into the show. Uh, We're having a lot of fun. We hope you're managing to uh, uh, get by okay and stay safe during this pandemic. We pray it's going to be over soon. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the